Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. If you're anything like me, listener, you probably don't spend too much time thinking about unions beyond when their efforts start to influence your life or make the front page of national newspapers, as we've seen recently in the TV, film, and auto industries. But very recently, the topic came up unexpectedly in the bar industry, as workers at one of the country's most notable craft cocktail spots announced their intention to unionize. We're not going to dig too deep into the specifics of that effort, though we will talk about them today. But instead, we're joined by returning guest and expert on labor, Dave Infante, to discuss how bar workers might go about unionizing and why they might want to do so in the first place. It's Teamsters, workers, bosses, wage theft, labor. And it's all right here on the Cocktail College podcast. He's the host of the Taplines podcast, the author of Vine Pear's weekly hop take column. He's famously got two beards, one mustache. And today, listener, he adds a second Cocktail College appearance to that collection. It is, of course, Mr. Dave Infante. Dave, thanks for joining us again. Thanks so much for having me. What is the Cocktail College uh, two-time appearance prize? Do I get like a challenge coin? Do I get some sort of uh, maybe commemorative bandana? What are we What are we working with for merch, Tim? Uh, special branded hats coming early <laughs> January 2024. Um, nice. But also you just, you, you get the knowledge that you're entering a, an ever more exclusive club with the more appearances you make here on the show. Ooh, I like that. Rarified air. I like to be in it. Thank you again so much for having me, man. Glad to be here. No, and, and listen, Dave, you are, I, I can't think of a better source for today's topic because today's episode is inspired by something very timely, and that is the efforts of Death & Co. East Village workers um, to unionize, to organize their labor. But we're not going to focus on that specifically or entirely today. And that's for a couple of different reasons. Uh, that effort is still ongoing. I'm sure we'll reference it at many different points throughout the day. But I think this was the perfect opportunity for us to look at this topic and say, okay, if other folks have seen that news and seen the steps that some workers are taking and they want to start that path themselves, how do they go about it? And I think a lot has been written or spoken about, at least online, about how given the profile of Death & Co as a bar, this is a great example. They can set an example because they have maybe a platform that arguably a handful, if not no other bars in America have. So great on all fronts there. And Dave, this is where you come in because you've covered this beat a lot, oftentimes through the beer lens. But I know this is something, a topic of which you're very knowledgeable in general. And also, I did want to highlight something for the listeners here today. Uh, the Death & Co. efforts specifically is something you've covered this week or last week as this will come out in your fingers newsletter uh, for folks not familiar with that i would say first of all subscribe then read the piece you very kindly put that one up for free but folks consider paying for those subscriptions because you will be funding uh, an independent source of journalism there on just some of the most fascinating topics and and, and lens through which to view drinking in America. Dave, before I ask you any questions, I just want to pull a quote, one line from that, um, from that fingers entry. And you said, it's an organizing effort nearly without precedent for the United States high-end mixology business in one of the world's most renowned tipple temples. Dave, tell us here today, elaborate please. 
just how groundbreaking or unique is this effort that we're seeing within the craft cocktail space specifically? So I think the the organization at Death & Co., their East Village location, right, their flagship location, this breaks um, last uh, well, two Fridays ago, I suppose, when listeners will be listening to this. And it caught my eye immediately because for a few reasons that we're going to kind of unpack over the course of the episode, I'm sure. But, you know, Death & Co., for your listeners, and even for people who are way less tuned in to, like, the craft cocktail movement or the modern mixology sort of landscape, however you want to contextualize, you know, the business of cocktails in America these days, um, you know, this is one of the biggest names, right? Like New Year's Eve 2006, they open. They're on sort of the the forerunning um, of the renaissance uh, of classic cocktails and new cocktails. They quite famously, you know, sort of pioneer the, I think some people call it the Mr. Potato Head model of, you know, tagging ingredients in and out and tweaking recipes like that. And so I don't need to lecture your very educated audience on, why Death & Co. is important to the cocktail space, I think everyone probably takes that as a given. The reason it's without, nearly without precedent and so significant is, is the organizing itself. Um, the cocktail space, like basically all of independent food and beverage uh, as an industry, is very, very low labor density. There's not a lot of unions that represent workers in uh, restaurants, bars, uh, tap rooms, breweries, even um, things like that. So, whenever there's a an organizing drive, a union drive, um, that's de facto news. Just because, I mean, it's very unusual. And the beat that I'm on, which, as you kind of mentioned, you so graciously sort of you know puffed fingers up. I mean, I've been covering labor and beverage alcohol, the intersection of the two. Um, you know, at Fingers and, and certainly at Hop Take uh, for those readers or l- listeners who read, you know, my column at Vine Pair every week. So, you know, whenever there's something like this, I am going to probably take a look at it and, and potentially cover it. Um, and w- with something like Death & Co., it's an immediate, obvious, newsworthy story because, I mean, there's just, as you mentioned, the prominence of this business and its reputation, national and international renown. Um, there's a much bigger spotlight. You just like their cocktails are on a much bigger spotlight. Their business practices are on a much bigger spot, you know, in a, on a much bigger stage. Right. And, and people, I think throughout the industry, uh, both workers, owners, commentators, uh, will be, or at least should be watching closely to see how this unfolds because of that outsized significance that death and co has. Yeah. I think those are, those are really great points there. And, and the fact that, you know, I kind of mentioned it before, but just listening to you talk about that, I was I was going through the kind of Rolodex in my head of, okay, if there were another bar in the US right now to do this, like, mm. would there be one that has a bigger platform? And, and I just can't think of any that come to mind. So I think it is, you know, very, very significant news here. Uh, and, and, and like we said, we're going to be covering this more through the lens of People have heard about it, and here's how they might be able to start following in those footsteps for themselves or start considering it at least. 
Um, if they want to, you know, we'll talk about that in more detail, but like, I think it's worthwhile for your audience to understand that like, you know, I'm covering this as a journalist. I'm certainly, I have a pro labor, you know, sort of perspective I've organized before, but, um, but I, I don't think that unions are without, you know, their drawbacks and unions are imperfect institutions just like companies are. So I think like the, the thing that I'd like to see more of is more transparency around that and more workers understanding what their options are. And that's part of the reason I cover this stuff so much. Yeah, fantastic. And so I'm going to start with a real low stakes one or, or, or hopefully a bit of a softball here for you to kick us off today, Dave. And the question is, why would workers in any industry want to unionize yeah man i mean you know like we're all a family here everyone's uh everyone's pals like why are you organizing right so (laughs) this is kind of the this is the perspective right so labor um or the dominant mainstream perspective for at least long as we've been alive i'm 35 is mainstream perspective towards labor has until very very recently been uh one of sort of anachronism or of uh, maybe outright condescension or disdain, but certainly, you know, basically since the late 70s, early 80s, um, labor union density in the country has been on the decline. Um, there are a bunch of reasons for that that are definitely beyond the scope of, of our episode today. And, and listeners who are interested, I urge you to you know, dig around, do some research, go check out In These Times, which is a fantastic progressive independent magazine that covers labor movement, labor notes, et cetera. But, you know, the basic dynamic that exists in workplaces is there are workers and there are managers or bosses, right? The simplest way to sort of understand what unions theoretically can do um, is that when workers bargain individually for their salaries or their wage or their healthcare benefits or whatever they want, you know, more safety on the job, et cetera, et cetera. If they do that by themselves, uh, they may get what they want um, from a boss who sees it their way. Um, and they may not, right? Um, unions don't guarantee that workers are going to get what they want, but they give a, workers a lot more power to bargain for it because they can do so as a group, right? It's easy to ignore one worker saying, hey, boss, I, you know, uh, I'm working a, a clopening, you know, shift or I'm, uh, we've got this, you know, bad situation with the low boy. We really need to replace it because people are getting, you know, gouged as they walk by. What, whatever the case may be, workplace, you know, frustrations, whether they're economic or non-economic. Um, the boss can say yes. Boss can say no. The boss can ignore you or maybe you can't even get a hold of the boy. Maybe you don't even know who actually owns the bar, Right. Um, it's a lot harder to ignore every single one of your workers speaking together and saying, Hey, this is really important for us. We don't want to escalate this to a point where we have to use our leverage, but all of us agree that we want this done. Let's talk about it because we need, you know, this isn't working for us. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, that's the difference. Um, and that's why I think labor unions traditionally have been attractive and it's why labor unions more recently in the last like two, three years or so, have become much more attractive. I mean, pro-labor sentiment is at one of its highest points now in 2023 as it's ever been in the last 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's be- I think a lot of the reason is because workers have experienced not being heard on the job, feeling like you know dramatic inequality and uh, housing costs and all of these things um, are just not really uh, under their control. And, and you know, 
a union is one form of trying to take back some of that control mm-hmm. for workers. So it's kind of a mix of, if you're kind of a sports fan here, a mix of organizing your defense and your offense there, right? You know, your defense tactic Ooh, there, safety in numbers. I like that. Yeah. And then maybe your offense is, well, look, we do hold these cards in which by, like you said, using your leverage, uh, I'm assuming by that you mean uh, walking out on mass strikes. Um, something that I find as someone who hasn't really covered this uh, topic or, you know, this field in any way, there is this kind of feeling that it's very much a, a blue collar kind of thing, right? That you traditionally mm. associate unions with factory workers and whatnot. But I think you only need to look at the recent headlines and, and you can point to, you know, screen actors, screenwriters, uh, as well as other, you know, the automotive industry. So I think it feels like, is this coincidental or is this maybe significant of a, a, a bigger kind of groundswell that's happening or conversations that are happening around labor in general? That's a kind of side question, but just keen for your take on that. Yeah, that's a very astute question. Boy, listeners, you're lucky to have this Tim McCurdy on Cocktail (laughs) Cod. He's out of his depth, but you wouldn't even know it because he's asking all the right questions, man. No, uh, I think you're right on there. I think it's the latter. I think it is indicative of a broadening of the perspective or of, you know, what American workers believe is possible with regards to labor unions, because you're right. I mean, there's been a um, a real perception, which, by the way, I think benefits uh, uh, corporations. They they don't want knowledge work to be considered uh, or or creative work like cocktails, which is kind of an intersection of knowledge and, and uh, you know, hands on manual labor um, to be considered, you know, union appropriate jobs. Right. Oh, that's for the factory. That's if you wear a hard hat. That's you don't we don't need unions. This isn't a business that has unions. It never has. Right. And I think there's maybe some a kernel of truth to the fact that, yes, typically you have not seen as much organizing in white-collar context. That's not to say they, that white-collar unions have never existed, by the way. They they basically always have. But it's true that it was more considered the purview of blue-collar workforces. And now, more recently, you mentioned the writer's strike. You mentioned the screen actor's strike, which, by the way, just ended like the week that we're recording this. They were out for over 100 days on strike. You know, that's an example of knowledge work, writers and, and actors and, and more high touch work. And, and acting is, I think, an interesting corollary to something like mixology, where it's a bunch of knowledge work, but also a bunch of physical, you know, tough days and you're on set and, you're, you know, you're on your feet, whatever. Um, so that's always existed. Like I said, there's always been that type of labor, um, that has looked to unions to build power on the job. Um, I think it's, it's, you can't ignore the fact that the death and co union is coming on the heels of three years of really, really aggressive barnstorm brush fire organizing at Starbucks across over 300 Starbucks locations where, Death & Co. and Starbucks, at least on their face, do not have a whole lot in common, right? But when you actually drill down on it, you look at some of the things that, you know, baristas do and some of the things that bartenders do, you can see a little bit of the shades of it there. And I think it's really important to give credit where due to Starbucks Workers United for creating an awareness amongst other, I don't know if you want to, I've called them like kind of craft beverage employees, right? Like workers who work in tap rooms or bars or whatever. Um, It's created an awareness like, oh shit, like this is possible. Like we can do this and it's not something that's foreclosed to us because we don't wear 
uh, you know, steel toed boots uh, and, and march into work at the, at the plant. Um, you know, this is something that we can do to build power whether we're doing something, you know, fancy and froofy, like, you know, making a Oaxaca old fashioned or whether we're, uh, you know, mounting a, a quarter panel on a Ford F-150. These are these tools apply to everyone should they choose to use them. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you mentioned before in kind of broad strokes why why anyone might want to uh, might want to organize why labor might want to organize uh, I want to focus now a little bit more specifically on the hospitality industry or the service industry because I think there's mm-hmm. some unique factors at play there and I, I I I think I suspect as well that might also play into why it's proven so hard to organize labor within that sector historically so can you talk us through those two things now sure so you're right on that sort of the reasons that F&B is unique compared to other sectors in like the broader American industry is also why it's been uh, traditionally not a stronghold of organized labor. So what we talk about like when we're, you know, when I'm covering unions, like what you got to understand is that there's typically, well, not typically, there is, there's a union body, right? Like that's, it's structured more or less like a corporation. There are obviously differences, but it's, it's a, it's a, an entity, right? So workers United, for example, is a, is a union that has its own staff that has its own organizers and administrators and whatever they collect dues. They, they have lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's the unions that exist at individual shops or stores or firms or whatever you want to call them, the businesses themselves. And they choose which union body they want to be represented by in collective bargaining. And so, you know, the problem that has long faced the F&B industry is that unions as a as bodies, right, like the Teamsters, the Workers United, Unite Here, uh, SEIU, whatever, like there, there are many of them. They have very limited resources because of labor's decline um, over the course of the past 40 years, which I mentioned earlier. They have less money, less dues are coming in. A barrage of uh, uh, concerted right-wing efforts to weaken labor laws has done its job and has left them with fewer tools and with fewer protections, yada, yada, yada. So unions these days tend to be very careful about choosing what you would maybe call high-value targets, right? They don't want to (laughs) necessarily – Death & Co. is organizing with 17 people, you know, uh, there are 300,000 Teamsters represented uh, at UPS. There are 5,000 Teamsters represented at Anheuser-Busch InBev. Uh, the UAW, the United Auto Workers, uh, who just you know finished up a strike, a very powerful, very successful strike against uh, the big three automakers, 150,000. They are looking, you know, with the limited amount of resources they have, unions are typically looking for the biggest quote-unquote bang for their buck, right? And like, there's not a restaurant in this country or a bar in this country with 5,000 employees at the same place. You know, maybe Olive Garden across all of its chains has more than that or Red Lobster or whatever, like some of the big, you know, Benihana's, who knows. But the point is in one place or in like a series of big, you know, shops, factories, depots, whatever, it's much easier to organize because everyone's there and you need fewer resources, you talk to more people at more time, you know, at, at, at the same time and, and yada, yada, yada. There's an economy of scale there, I guess, is a way to put it. Restaurants have never had that. I mean, restaurants, by their definition, are, are you know, fractured bars, are, are fractured, fragmented, you know, businesses across geography and across 
neighborhood and across, you know, socioeconomic divide, et cetera, et cetera. And it's not that they don't deserve to be given attention by unions if workers want it. Um, it's that unions don't have the opportunity. They don't really have the the spare bandwidth to go organize it, you know, 17 people at a time, 25 people at a time. It, it's just not, it's never been a target. That's true also of, of craft breweries and craft distilleries. Um, and, and, you know, uh, Starbucks is so unusual and, and was such a threat, uh, um, a watershed moment because uh, Workers United and, and the you know, workers at the, the first few shops were smart enough to say, well, wait a second, like there's actually a ton of us if you add all these shops up together. And I bet all of us have very similar problems because we're all working for basically the same company. Um, and that's where you start to see the strategy, the grassroots strategy, you know, take hold um, and have success. But F&B has been really challenging for that regard. And the other, the other big thing I'll point out, which you know because you came from F&B, um, is that there's a, a pervasive culture and I think like there's there's ups and downs to it, but there's a pervasive culture of this is a gig, right? Like I, if I don't like it, I'm going to move. I have the I have the skills to move on to the next one. I'll be hired tomorrow. So what that does is give workers a ton of flexibility, right? If you're picking up bartending shift at one place and it sucks, guess what, man? Like there's a bunch of other bars. I'm going to go pick up a, you know, I'm going to get a job somewhere else or, you know, if I'm a cook, whatever. The flip side of that, you can kind of see why this would be a problem for organizing, right? Like, hey, I hate it here. Well, what should I do? Should I stay at the job that frustrates me and the boss hates me and he's on my ass all the time? Um, I'm not getting paid enough. Should I stay at this job? do the slow, arduous work of organizing my fellow coworkers, having, you know, secret meetings after hours and, you know, chatting with each other about grievances and coming together and saying, hey, we want to form a union. That takes months, right? Or let me just go down the street. My buddy already works at this other restaurant. Like he says he needs a line cook. I'll be there tomorrow night making more money with less problems, right? And I don't say that to criticize workers in the service industry or in the hospitality industry. Um, I get the impulse for sure. It's just that it's an inherent challenge mm-hmm. for organizing this space because it's a really powerful, uh, you know, force of gravity, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So that really inspires two thoughts that I've had here and actually some conversations we've had on Cocktail College before. So mm. number one would be during our episode with Jill Coxon that I urge everyone to look out for. Um, we got into this whole idea that we're not picking sides today. We're not picking sides in terms of workers versus bar owners and operators, because ideally we're, we're, we'd like to speak to all of them here at Cocktail College. But mm-hmm. one thing that Jill said that's always stuck with me is that both sides need to start treating bartending as a profession and not vocation, right? And, yeah, and it has oh, to yeah. come from both sides too. You, cannot, you can very easily point your finger to bar owners and say, well, there's, you know, wages are largely supported by tips, right? Healthcare mm-hmm. may or may not be there. They may, not, may or may not have the, the means to offer that or any other benefits. But on the other hand, you can turn around and say, well, because of that, it's this weird chicken and egg symbiosis thing where people are like, okay, if I work in that industry, uh, well, I went out late last night and I'm feeling like shit today. So guess what? I'm just not going to show up for my shift, right? Or I'm not mm. going to treat this like a job. Or like you said, you know what? I don't like it here anymore. So I'm going to leave. I might not give you any notice. No shows are the worst. I, I experienced that a lot when I was working as a chef and you know, that, sure. that just people not turning up, but yeah, so that is something that I think is pervasive within the industry and also 
both sides need to come together on that one. Um, the fragmentation issue too. So when we saw a couple of years ago here in New York City, where after the pandemic or as the pandemic was receding, um, cocktails to go were suddenly being addressed. And you had this very organized movement. We're not talking workers here. We're talking about organizations and industry, which were yeah, liquor stores. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Yeah. And they they had a lot of, you know, power because they are organized as an industry. Whereas, and this is what proved really hard, I think, during the pandemic too, is that it's so hard to make, let's forget restaurants for now, right? Let's just focus solely on bars. Sure. The model is so different from bar to bar, right? Because a dive bar is very different to Death & Co. Or a kind of, I don't know, a chain bar. That's a casual restaurant maybe, but TGI Fridays or something, right? Whereas you're talking there about Starbucks. And like you said, they're pretty much all in the same situation, but Mm -hmm. the bar world and, and, and the structure just remains so fragmented. So I think that that's why that's this massive stumbling block that I don't know whether we'll ever come up with a solution for on on a larger scale to maybe look at organizing the the industry en masse. So I think Mm -hmm. maybe we view the rest of the conversation today through the lens of individual location, this very small grassroots kind of organizing, like you mentioned there before, which brings us to therefore. For those who still think the juice is worth the squeeze here, for those still willing to take on the challenge, <laughs> or at least hear out how that might happen, tell us, Dave, how, how does that begin? And, and, and what does the process look like kind of from start to finish? And I'm going to jump in if there's any points where you're using terms that maybe are more familiar to yourself, but maybe aren't to sure. myself and, and, and that. But yeah, tell us, we've decided we're going to do this. What comes next? So organizing is even though to your point individual bars are very different from one another and certainly bars are different from other businesses generally right um organizing actually like starts with a lot of the same principles regardless of where you are and it all starts with you know things that workers want to come together and uh, improve about their work conditions about their work their experience at work uh you know the the safety on the job whatever like no one there's a there's a um sort of like an aphorism or a maxim in um, labor organizing that's like the companies that get unions are the companies that need unions, right? Like there's no one organizes a union if they love their boss, they feel like they're being treated fairly um, and they, you know, there's no problems, right? Like these, it starts with problems. um, Typically you do see some organizing saying, Hey, we have a, we have a really good thing going here and and that's great. And we have no animosity towards our boss, but we also know that this industry is fickle and precarious and, and we need to make sure that we're being smart about it. And we believe that unions are a way to do that. Right. So there's some of that as well, but typically what you see is, you know, workers are like, Hey man, like, have you noticed that like, you know, the, we're not getting tipped out as much as we used to, or have you noticed that like, you know, the, the, because the fridge is fucked up, like we have to keep on doing prep in one place and then haul it all the way to this other place in the restaurant. And, you know, that's really annoying. I bet we could like improve if we could, if we could just get the boss to let us buy, you know, convince him to buy a new fridge or her to buy a new fridge, that would make our lives a lot better, wouldn't it? Right. So things like this, you start talking as anyone who's worked a job before knows, you kind of establish rapport with coworkers that you trust. And, And then you start saying, you know, a lot of times outside of the context of labor organizing, that goes nowhere, right? And you say, yeah, that fucking sucks. Like, let's go get a beer Uh, or, you know, like what, you know, like this, uh, let's go bitch about it after work, right? 
But if you have someone who, you know, in the shop, in the bar, who is familiar with labor organizing, or even just, they're not familiar, but they're like, you know, I, I wonder if like unions are a thing that could like help, you know, whatever. Eventually, someone's going to start talking about unions. Either they know what they're talking about, or they've gone through the step of hitting up friends of friends. Hey, do you know anyone who, you know, knows any more about this, whatever. Eventually, someone's going to get on the phone with, uh, with a labor organizer, with an organizer at one of those union bodies that I was talking to. Um, there are also independent unions where they form themselves, but typically, especially with like less organized spaces where people aren't as familiar with unions in general, um, they're looking to, you know, a, a, an established union for the resources and the know-how and whatever. They start talking uh, to the organizers and the organizer says, okay, like, you know, go figure out how many people actually want this. And you're going to have to have conversations with your coworkers and, um, you're not allowed to be fired for talking union on the job. Um, that's a legal protection under federal law. Um, but typically you're going to see workers not talk openly about unions, uh, at their workplace until such time as they've gone public with it, because we all know that the difference between what's legal and what actually happens is quite large in this country. And there's a million ways to fire someone. You can, and if you're in an at-will state, they can fire you for no reason at all and, and just say, no, it definitely wasn't that they were organizing. Right. Mm -hmm. So you'll, it, this typically, this part typically happens, you know, more secretly. Like you pull someone aside and be like, Hey, you want to grab a coffee? You know, like, Hey, like, can we meet up after work and like chat me and, you know, Tom want to talk to you about something, whatever. Uh, eventually if there's the, you know, if it is a thing that workers want, they eventually get more people on their side and, you know, two grows to four, grows to six, grows to 20, whatever. And once a typically, you know, organizers want to see uh, an overwhelming majority, right? So something around like 75% of all the prospective workers who could vote for a union in that particular bar, we want to see at least 75% of them saying, yes, I want this. I want this so much, in fact, that I've signed my name to what's called a union card. It's a, it, I mean, there are digital versions, but eventually it's a physical card saying, I, I want to organize. I want to be represented by, you know, this union. And that's usually around the point where workers will either go public with their union um, or they will hit up, as they did at Death & Co., they'll hit up their management at that point and say, hey, we have all these union cards. Your workers want this. Um, we want to just bargain with you in good faith collectively about our conditions, about our pay, et cetera, et cetera. Will you voluntarily recognize our union? Um, this, is, this can go a few ways. Uh, now... The best way that it can go, in my opinion, for everyone involved, is the boss says, wow, I didn't know you guys didn't like this or, or we're having this many troubles, but if all of you want this, and you clearly do because you have all these union cards, which by the way, like they won't hand those over to the boss, you know, but like the bar union will get like a third party to verify them to both the boss and the union. So like they used to do it with like, you know, the town priest or the mayor mm -hmm. or something, you know, like, like, Hey, I'll look at the cards. If it's true that they have, you know, what they say they have, I will then communicate it to the boss and say, Hey, I'm not going to tell you the individual names that are on the cards, yeah. 
but I'm going to tell you that there's 75% of them for sure. Um, and it, you know, so that's like a way to verify. So it's not like there, no one's being like hustled by the, you know, the union, no one's faking it. Yeah. Um, and the, if the boss volunteer, you know, is like, Hey, like you guys want this. I just want to make sure everyone's focused on work. So let's skip all the, the misery and let's, I'll, I voluntarily recognize your, your right to bargain collectively with them as, you know, with this specific union as your representatives. Uh, I'll see you at the bargaining table. Right. And that's pretty much it, right? It can be really that quick. Um, and sometimes it is. In fact, uh, in Minneapolis, just a couple or last week, uh, Unite Here Local 17, which has done a tremendous amount of organizing in the food and beverage space, the Twin Cities are a hotbed for that in a way that very few other parts of the country are, specifically in F&B and in bars and in craft beverage. Um, they organized like 200 workers at a big popular um, like chain of – a local chain of like nightclubs and bar music venue type places – and to the boss's credit, like they went public with the drive on like Friday morning and by Friday evening, the boss had issued a statement saying like, you know, we'll, we'll meet you at the bargaining table and we look forward to bargaining in good faith. And, uh, if this is what you guys want, then, then we'll see you there. And mm -hmm. so it does happen. I don't want to make it sound like it's like never, mm -hmm. <laughs> never going to happen. It doesn't ever happen. So I just want to stop you here at one point, just before we move on from there, just a quick recap here. And just to make sure that I'm understanding and digesting this. Uh, so what happens is it will start from the workers. Uh, the workers themselves will then decide, choose upon a union with which they want to represent them. Um, mm -hmm. They will then go through the formal process themselves of signing their union cards, understanding that they have that 75% majority. Um, and then goes to the next point where we have this third party come almost like a impartial adjudicator here, right? Where they say this person is a mediator between both people. Exactly. Um, we we yep. say that this is true. Okay. And that's the point at which we can go through this different these different avenues after it. Number one being the company owner voluntarily accepting that. Correct. That's exactly right. And I will say that like, you know, people who are maybe a little bit more uh, hawkish or, or, you know, not as friendly to unions as maybe I'm making it sound, will point out, and they are right, that it is sometimes the case that unions do say, hey, we want to organize that business because it's 5,000 jobs, it's in our region. You know, I'm a union local who is in an Amazon warehouse district. We need to go organize Amazon because we need to add to our union roles be because those workers need representation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not exclusively the case that workers are always starting it. There's also something called salting where like someone who's employed by the union goes undercover, gets a job at a place and like starts kind of agitating as a, what, what seems to be a coworker. Um, he's working basically double duty. Mm -hmm. It's very intriguing and exciting. It's also totally legal. The Supreme court has upheld the legality of salting, uh, a couple times. Um, it's, for obvious reasons, bosses fucking hate it and also make it out to be really shady and sleazy. Um, but it is absolutely legal. Mm -hmm. um, but yes, in bars, that stuff doesn't really no. happen, man. Yeah. There was a little bit of that. There were some reports of salting at Starbucks. But in a place like Death & Co. like or any other high-end cocktail bar, like you would have to be a fucking amazing mixologist who's also like very <laughs> pro union. You would probably already just be in, employed at Death and Co. Or so, you know, like yeah. there's not like a lot of those. That more happens at lower skill yep. um, jobs because, like, obviously, that means that like 
some guy who works for the union can like go in and, you know, pull the lever at the factory floor every day. He can like have a, have a factory job, but also be organizing. Yeah. It would be pretty hard and actually really funny now that I'm thinking about it <laughs> for like, so like someone to try to salt like a high end cocktail bar and like not know what the fuck they're doing, you know, <laughs> like trying to make a daiquiri and they're, you know, like their specs all off. Like they're mm-hmm. not keeping their workspace clean. They're in mm-hmm. the weeds. Like yeah. they would get fired immediately. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, and they also wouldn't be able to do that. They wouldn't be able to gain those skills and then do it at one bar and then go to another because this of course it's a fragmented industry in terms of organization but in terms of personal and professional relationships you know yeah it's it's a small industry when you start to really break it down everyone knows each other here right like yeah so that's just not going to happen um that's a really good point man yeah and and that i think also is inhibiting you know we don't have to go down this road too much but i think that's also an inhibitor to organizing in this space you're much more recognizable. I mean, you have autonomy as a, as more of a creative employee and a knowledge working job. You're in the front of house most of the time, if you're a bartender or host or whatever. So, uh, and, 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 you know, people get jobs because they know people and whatever. And, and the opposite is also true, right? Like people don't get jobs because people know you and say, Hey, I don't like working with him. Well, Mm -hmm. guess what, man? Like it is illegal to not hire someone because of their their you know position on unions, but it happens all the fucking time. I bet. So that's that's definitely a factor in in such a close knit industry as bartending as well. Mm-hmm. And so, if a company owner, bar owner in this instance, decides we are not going to voluntarily accept or recognize your effort here, um, what happens then? So there are a few other routes, and it, it does. It, I'll I'll lay them out in terms of like level of like adversarialness or like. Ajita, maybe is a better way to put it. Um, the next, like, most benign thing um, that a boss can do is say, hey, I hear you. You know, you've got what you say is an overwhelming majority. You know, I, I, I want to trust but verify. And, and I don't want to call the, the local priest or, you know, like some guy. Um, I, I want to at least get the National Labor Relations Board to sign off on this and make sure it goes through the proper channels. And so that's what's called card check. Um, card check is a pretty, you know, I think like, I think it's fair. I think it's probably if you don't have a boss who's instinctively or reflexively pro labor, um, but also is a fair boss. I think card check is like a pretty fair way to proceed. Um, it takes all the pain of the, the, the other ones that I'm going to describe in a second. There's none of that sort of open, you know, sort of uh, uh, butting of heads between management of labor. If the union has the cards they say they have, then in the NLRB signs off on that and says, yep, this is a good deal, whatever. Uh, this is, this is kosher. Um, then that's that. And then they're recognized. They, you still have to file at the NLRB, but it's um, a pretty low, uh, low lift compared to these other more escalated steps. The next one is uh, like a third party, election, basically a secret ballot, third party election. Um, and this was, is like, now you're getting to a situation where the boss maybe is, maybe is union busting deliberately, maybe is going into it with the best intentions, but is inadvertently, uh, you know, kind of standing in labor's way. Um, the, the third party union election is like, all right, like, well, I, I, you know, yeah, you say you have an overwhelming majority, but I want to make sure that everyone actually understands what they're getting themselves into, right? Yeah, 75% of these people sign these cards, but like, do they know, 
you know, about like the union dues that they're going to pay? Do they know about, you know, uh, the fact that, you know, if they have a grievance, they can't, uh, they have to pursue it a certain way. Now I'm, I'm sort of adopting that voice because those are, those are very common union busting tactics. Um, they, you can tell, and, and, you know, listeners who are not as familiar with this stuff, maybe that sounds reasonable, right? Like, well, yeah, wait a second. Like, I I do think that's fair. I I think they should make sure that their workers are able to know, uh, you know, like what they're getting themselves into or, or, you know, um, this, this or that. Right. And that's true. If you assume everyone's operating in good faith, um, the problem is the power dynamic between bosses and workers is germane here, right? One of them has all the power and the other doesn't. So, for one of them to interdict on a process like that under the guise of educating their workers or, uh, you know, making sure I want to talk to everyone just to make sure this is what they want, right? Like those sound like benign interventions, but um, they can actually be really, really easily, you know, used as a tool to try to flip sentiment from pro-union to, uh, you know, to voting against the union in the eventual third party election. Again, like it's a gray area and that's why union busting is so effective is because this stuff happens in a way that sounds, you know, like almost reasonable. Um, but in rea- in practice it is, it can be incredibly powerful, uh, as a, as an anti-labor tool or an mm-hmm. anti-union tool. Mm-hmm. And then the, fi- the final thing, the final step is, uh, is just an election through the National Labor Relations Board, through the NLRB. Um, and this is the least desirable for a few reasons, or I shouldn't say least desirable. A lot of labor activists and organizers view this as the least desirable for, for a few reasons. The biggest is just that the NLRB has been gutted over you know 40 years, 40 five years of neoliberal, uh, policy basically since Reagan. Um, it's not in very recent years, it's become more pro worker, but it had until very recently been kind of viewed as having its thumb on the scale for the boss in any given conflict. It also takes forever. Um, okay. So it's like a delay and delay is, is incredibly damaging to a, a union movement and it's especially damaging in an industry like bartending, where, as we've discussed, yeah. people move on. People are, you know, hey, I got to make rent. And I'm not getting the shifts I want. Or, hey, I've got an opportunity to double my tips at this other place that a job is waiting for me. I'm, I'm pro-union, man, but I got to move on. Well, guess what? Now that's a pro-union vote out the door. And who they replace them with? Well, we'll see if they're pro-union. And, and if management is savvy... Um, and is, is d- intent on keeping the union out. Uh, yeah, they're going to make sure to backfill that bartender with mm-hmm. someone who doesn't want to fucking vote for the union. You know? <laughs> like, so, so these things come into play and the NLRB votes, you know, like 30 days or so is a pretty typical, like if everything goes exactly according to plan, it can be done in as little as 30 days, which it doesn't sound like that much, but is an eternity for, workers who are at the whims of bosses that can be, you know, very antagonistic towards unions or managers who are going to mm-hmm. illegally pull them aside and, and say, Hey, we'll offer you a $5,000 bonus off the books. If you vote against it, this stuff happens. I mean, I, you know, like it's, it's very much like part of the landscape. 30 days is a long time to resist those types of efforts because at this point management or the owners still have 
the power in the really all the power almost all the power in the relationship mm-hmm. um and so that's why a lot of labor activists view it as the least desirable now at death and co that's the route that they've chosen to go um they asked for voluntary recognition and death and co did not offer it or did not chose not to offer it which is their prerogative by the way it's not they are not obligated to um they are allowed to say no um, or say, hey, we really, as as the founder of Death & Co. told me, like, we really want this to go to election to be an NLRB election, to be on the up and up, to be totally democratic, et cetera, et cetera. Again, that sounds good. And I don't want to ascribe malice to him in particular because I, I did not perceive that when I spoke with him. I will say that that is a well sort of uh, trod tactic of anti-union consultants, of anti-union lawyers, hey, drag it out for as long as possible. Again, I don't get the sense that that's happening at Death & Co., at least at this stage. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, you do see it uh, not just at at, at bartending unions, at every union. Mm -hmm. That's that's kind of a common tactic. So a couple follow-up questions here for you, just in terms of that organization. Uh, You spoke about management. You spoke about workers. Uh, in the case of, of you know, the hospitality industry, because there is that interesting breakdown where if you move into a management position, then you will oftentimes become salary and lose, mm. you know, have more of a steady income, but perhaps lose all or a majority of your, your tip share, right, that you got before. Uh, that, that, that can be... That can manifest itself in different ways. You can end up working the same or more hours with more stability, yep. but for less money, right? Uh, right. In in this case, what do we mean when we talk about getting a majority of the workers? Would that management be included in that, or is it only in this scenario only um, basically salary paid employees that are able to organize? That's a great question. So t- the the rule of thumb, and this this is the subject of many court cases lawsuits when um, these things play out actually at a given shop, right? Um, The general rule of thumb is that if you have the power to hire and fire people, um, like you could turn around tomorrow and say, I don't, I don't like the way you're doing this job, Jessica, I'm sorry, but like pack up your shit and go. Um, Then you're a boss, right? And if you don't have that power, then you're a worker. And the only employees of a firm who can join a workers union are workers. And the reason for that is it's very difficult. There are many reasons for this and I'm simplifying a ton. And please, if anyone's like a labor activist out there, like do not email me. I know (laughs) a little bit more than this. Please don't shout at me uh, because I'm condensing it too much, but uh, (laughs) they are very much not our audience today. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, But um, the reason, one of the major reasons for that, it's very difficult to build solidarity to build fellow feeling and, and, you know, uh, a sense of equality and all for one and one for all across the divide of hiring and firing. Like if you can do that, you have more power. You, you, you had, you are on the, on the upside of the power dynamic. You have, you know, the, the, uh, scales are tilted in your favor. Um, and so you, yeah, you, the bartenders in a, in a bar context, uh, the hosts, the security, if, if they're not employed by a third-party contractor, um, the barbacks, all of – anyone who's like doing wage labor mm-hmm. and is, is – you know, I think like in, in this context, I guess like the tip pool would also be a good way to identify who's a, who's a worker and who's a boss. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're in that, you're, you're you know, mm-hmm. you're a worker. If you're not, you're probably a manager, right? But like I said, this is something that gets litigated really, really aggressively because – 
in, in some cases because not at a bar because it's too small, but like you can imagine at a 500 person company, if, if the union wants to include 250 developers, let's say, as part of the union with all the marketing people, a boss who doesn't want a union there or at least wants to reduce the power of the union that does wind up there says, well, wait a second, these aren't, these aren't the same jobs. Like these aren't the same types of workers. This is not what's part, should not be part of, uh, the term is called the bargaining unit. This shouldn't, these developers shouldn't be in the bargaining unit. They have different material, you know, sort of cadence to their workflow. They do different things. They do whatever, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And the same thing, the same carve outs will, t- you'll see that happen with, you know, Hey, should assistant, uh, should manager or should workers who have key privileges, uh, you know, who close, um, or open, are those managers or not? Well, we, you know, we, we trust them to open and close the restaurant. Like, well, I think they actually are managers and, um, you know, like the, so bosses again, who don't want the union to have more workers in it, um, will say, Hey, hang on a second. Like Michelle has key, you know, privileges. She can't be in the union because, uh, you know, like she's a manager, right? So we, we want her out. Um, and then this is all up for negotiation and debate, right? If every single worker says, uh, no, fuck you, man. Like Michelle's a worker, like the rest of us, we stand in solidarity with her and they say they're willing to fight for that. Then, then you go to, it goes to court. If they all kind of fucking hated Michelle to begin with, (laughs) then we're like, (laughs) she thinks she's a manager and she annoys the shit out of us. Mm -hmm. Like, then Michelle's probably going to get carved out of the union yeah. pretty quickly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if I can bring it back to the, the kind of bar-specific model here that we're talking about. Yep. So if this goes through with Death & Go, or in any other bar, right, but Death & Go being a high-profile example here, sure. then that might be attractive to other workers within the hospitality industry. Um, so if someone leaves a position at Death & Co, because it's a, it's a coveted job to have in New York City for many different reasons, if someone's right, right. in the union, if this is successful, and then they leave Death & Co, that's it, they're done. And if someone's new to Death & Co, then what happens? Can they join the union? Will they have maybe a union leader within the team there who goes and tries to recruit them when they come on? Ah, so this is, again, very astute question here, man. Uh, so the first one is pretty easy, right? Um, if you leave the shop that you're you've organized at, Unless you are in something like the Screenwriters Guild, which is what's known as sectoral bargaining, where the entire sector of an industry is covered under one agreement. Absent that, and there's very little sectoral bargaining in the United States, um, you're talking about shop-level organizing. And so once you leave that shop, you leave that the protections of that union because the union can't bargain for you anywhere else. They don't have contracts with other employers in the way that the screenwriters guild, they have contracts with all the studios. So you leave, you know, you were writing on big bang theory and then you, you know, wind up writing on Yellowstone, which by the way, now that I'm saying that is just an insane arc to your career, but congratulations to you. (laughs) Um, I guess Uh, you, you, you're still in the screen actors guild the whole time because they have contracts with all the places that you want to work, right? And they the sectoral bargaining is, is different. It's not worth going into here, but any further here. But bartending, suffice to say, is absolutely not sectoral bargaining. There's basically nowhere that's that's union. Uh, in, besides hotels, which I will say uh, are like the big outlier here, 
that's the reason I said independent food and beverage businesses at the beginning. Um, hotels have their own unions and oftentimes the bars that are in hotels will organize with that union. So they'll be covered under that contract. That is a, a worthwhile point that I don't really want to like, that's a whole can of worms. I don't want to go down, but I just wanted to flag that as, you know, besides that, there's not really much uh, union uh, labor in the bartending industry. Once you leave, you, you're, you're out. Um, you can, if you so choose, if you really believe in the cause and you say, you know what, like I'm going to be in this industry for my entire life. This industry has structural change that needs to be addressed. I'm going to become a member at large with my union. You know, the, the, the union that worked that, that I was represented by at, at, you know, this bar or at death and co whatever. And that means you pay reduced dues. Um, and you don't have voting, you know, privileges for like the shop, you know, uh, uh, like stuff that comes up at the shop and, and you're not obligated to strike if they call a strike, et cetera, et cetera. But you can still kind of maintain membership within the union. That's your prerogative. You don't often see it because for the obvious reason, you're still paying dues into something that, you know, people aren't, you're not necessarily getting direct benefit out of. And people aren't typically willing to do that in this country because like the concept of solidarity is very, you know, it's very niche and narrow in this country in a way that it isn't in, you know, more pro-labor social democracies in Western Europe or wherever, uh, Scandinavia. Um, the second question is trickier. Uh, and this is not specific to bars, but this brings up the concept of right to work, um, which is a very sort of like devilish little phrase uh, that sounds okay, you're like fair on its face, but is actually a cudgel that corporate interests have used to bludgeon labor over the years. Um, this is the idea that no one should be allowed to be forced to join a union just to get a job, right? They have a right to work without having to pay union dues. Um, we're not going to go into this in big detail, but New York, I don't believe, is a right-to-work state. Um, so in a place like New York, that doesn't exist. The state of New York says, no, we don't recognize that as a real right. That's not something that's protected under a constitution. That's not, you know, whatever. If you join a bar that has a union that represents its workers, you have two choices. You don't take the job or you join the union. Like, those are, those are your options, right? That's going to be different in the Southeast, the Midwest, um, those are kind of the two big strong Texas. Those are the big strongholds for right to work. And because they're more anti-labor, they have had a lot more success at the legislative level of pushing through that type of rule. Um, so if you, if death and co, for example, was in Charleston, South Carolina, um, or opened a bar there and like the, you know, the, they organized under the union and I got a job at death and co bar backing or whatever, cutting citrus, uh, Charleston. Um, and I come in on day one, like, cool, like join the union. It costs whatever, $50 a paycheck. And here's all this great stuff that we get. We get, you know, this, this, and that. I say, well, wait a second. I don't, I don't want to pay 50 bucks a month. Like, uh, you can't make me. And in South Carolina, they can. Um, so you get all the benefits of working at a union shop or at a bar in this case without paying into it, which because unions run on members dues, it has been a really effective tool for for corporate interests mm, to strangle unions from the lifeblood of of having enough money to operate over mm -hmm. years. So in this case, yeah, anyone if if this were to be recognized, if, it, if this comes through, then anyone henceforth joining because of the, the because of um, New York's status as a state, anyone who therefore joins that bar team will have to become a part of that union. 
Right. Mm-hmm. They would have to they would have to join the union at whatever mm-hmm. tier of, of God. like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, job that mm-hmm. had been established by the contract. Yep. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I have one kind of maybe final question here for you today, Dave, unless, you know, you think there's anything we haven't covered, but I want to come at this from another perspective because I have, I do think that this is something we should be considering in this case specifically, but also mm-hmm. when thinking about the industry, right? If this is successful or successful in another bar, is it fair that owners, managers, but specifically bar owners might say that, okay, when we get to the bargaining table and mm-hmm. you're asking for maybe certain demands that are just not standard for this industry, or maybe you're asking for too much, and we as a bar are operating roughly in very much the same way as every other bar in this city. So Mm. you are almost giving us a competitive disadvantage. Uh, I know Mm. there are pros and cons here, but I'm just, I I, want to maybe give the voice here of a bar owner saying this, like, look, it's already hard as shit to make money in this industry. Like the profit margins suck. You know, we've had COVID, all this stuff, like... What you're coming to us today at the bargaining table just is unrealistic for this industry, and it's not we're changing the industry at large. Um, is that is there some kind? Is that slightly fair in a way? Like, how do we navigate that? It's a really again, man. You're fucking on the ball today, man. <laughs> uh, not that you ever aren't, but this is great, man. Like you, you know exactly where to look. Um, it's a really prescient question. So the and it's it's a solvable one if both parties are operating in good faith. So I should say that everything that we've described up into this question basically is just to get union workers recognized at the bar as union workers, right? Like uh, they they are legally recognized as collectively bargaining under a certain body, right? Um Death and Co. Workers United or Starbucks Workers United or any other union, right? That is the battle that we've been talking about so far. And sometimes it's not a battle at all. Oftentimes it is. But being recognized as a union entitles you to nothing at the bargaining table except for the right to collectively bargain. So I think in this is a misperception. And it's a misperception that I think is stoked oftentimes in bad faith by people who or anti-labor for ideological reasons or whatever. But it's like, well, if a, a union is going to kill this business. If you if you unionize, like, we're toast, right? And that's just not true. It could be true that management agrees to things that are not in the firm's best interest and workers get a too fat of a share of, you know, the op- or the profits or operating costs and then like, you know, the, the quality deteriorates or whatever. That is hypothetically a thing that could happen, but that would require the bosses to go to the bargaining table and kind of just shit the bed in a way that like they would be against their own interests. Like if the workers say, hey, I want, I want to be paid $75 an hour to, you know, to bar back at Death & Co., and Death & Co. for some reason is like, cool, done. Like, sounds great. Uh, see you out there. Um, that would potentially, yeah, make Death & Co. less competitive, right? That's an insane amount of money to pay someone who's at the beginning of their career and who's backing the bar and whatever. And, like, the margins just don't bear that, whatever. If they were to agree to that, yeah, they would probably put the business in dire straits. The thing is they're not obligated to agree to things at bargaining just because workers want them. 
And this is where, like, there's a way to navigate this in a way that is relatively painless. It's still friction and it's still a hassle and there's going to be a lot of, like, you know, frustration and whatever on both sides of the table. But there's a way to do this that, like, everyone walks away getting some of what they want, the business carries on, and it becomes a more attractive place to work because it has better benefits, because it has higher wages, because it, you know, they have a grievance system that they can pursue formally if, if there's a problem, whatever. So there's a way to make it work at bargaining for, for both parties. Um, but yeah, if in the hypothetical situation where a boss is like, workers across the table are asking me for 100% raises across the board, I do not have the money to operate this business without, you know, and grant that without, you know, going under or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it would be very difficult for me to imagine a boss who would say yes to that demand at the bargaining table. Mm-hmm. Now it can get really gnarly, Tim, like the bar, the bar owner and the bartenders, you know, may disagree on this. And then the union that represents the bartenders may say, Hey, if you're saying that's true, we need to see your profit and loss sheet from last year. We need to see your balance sheet because if there's really no money in the business, agreed, like then we need to reframe this, but we don't believe you because you just bought a Audi, you know, Mm -hmm. you just, uh, uh, you know, went on vacation, um, whatever, like, Hey, how much are you paying yourself, Mr. Bar owner? Right? Like these are questions that for obvious reasons make bar owners upset. Um, you know, they've run their place their way and they oftentimes, I'm not saying this at death and co specifically, but, uh, uh, you get into that business because you were a bartender yourself oftentimes, right? Like, and it's like, well, who are these fuckers who like, I, I, I worked all this way to get to this point. Yeah. I draw $160,000 a year, you know, just in profits off of the business for my own, you know, uh, 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 edification, you know, it's it, whatever, but I earned that. And who are they to ask me how much I'm drawing from my business, right? That it can get really intense, but it, on the flip side, like you can understand if the workers are going to back off that demand of, of higher wages and, and, and the boss says, Hey, like we can't afford it. It's an obvious. And I think germane next question for workers to be like, why show us the balance sheet, show us, you know, mm-hmm. like where the money's actually mm-hmm. going, because, the back of the napkin math that we're doing based on the figures you provided us do not add up. Mm -hmm. Um, And so you can see why that can be protracted and that can be uh, heated and difficult, you know, negotiations, Mm -hmm. but it, it happens and it gets done, man. Like there are, you know, and, and life goes on, like the business succeeds or fails based on a variety of internal and external factors. And, and it's not that it's never happened. Mm -hmm. We really just don't see it happen that often because again, it would require the, the bar owner to just like take a flyer and like do the <laughs> things that were directly against his own interest. You know? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it sounds like, look, if everyone's operating in good faith and we know there are reasons why they might not want to be, but if everyone is operating in good faith, there, this seems like a, a scenario that can work for everyone. And you mentioned something too, that I've heard through a different lens, which is kind of like settling out of court or with lawyers. This is obviously different. But a successful negotiation for all parties is where all parties leave that negotiation kind of a little bit upset, right? Right. Apart from the lawyer. The lawyer wins, but that's not the case here, right? Banks has fees no matter what. Yeah, Yeah, no, exactly. exactly. And like, I think there's, you know, and and I'm sure people who own their own businesses, whether they're bars or anything else, would take umbrage with this. But I, I don't agree with the idea that unions are de facto 
you know, sort of bad or, or, or an absolute death knell for a business. Like there are, there are plenty of examples of them working well and also taking some of the administrative burden off of the plate of the employer. Because now before, you know, like a worker goes to their shift manager to bitch about something, they go chat to the, with their union rep and say, Hey, can I file an unfair labor practice about this? And like the union rep might be like, no, man, like that's just like, you know, that's not a thing. You're just, you don't like your boss, but they haven't done anything wrong. <laughs> like you don't, you don't get to complain about everything just for the fuck of it. We don't have time to just file unfair labor practices for no reason. Right. Like there's structure and also workers feel better about, you know, like the work that they're doing, they feel more secure, which we know leads to better productivity over time. Like these are, there are ways to make it work. Mm -hmm. Um, whether it's at a a cocktail bar or, you know, a a factory, like, you know, there is a win-win to be eked out here. Um, but you know, whether that happens at death and co or whether it happens more broadly in the cocktail business, um, very much remains to be seen Mm -hmm. right now. So, Dave, very interesting, very interesting precedent here, even, you know, regardless of the outcome, I think, you know, we wouldn't be talking about this otherwise, but for the fact maybe, you know, it's Death and Core, a handful of other bars. I will once again, just direct folks to your Substack, your newsletter, Fingers, check that out. You can read more about this and more about the case specifically, because I think it was good of us not to get too much into the details there, because that distracts from what we're trying to talk about today. But Dave, I just want to say thanks again also for not just making this topic digestible, Dare I say, I feel like you've made this actually very enjoyable, for myself at least. So hopefully I'm not alone there. (laughs) Well, you know, you're an audience of one. You're the only person I care about. Uh, Listeners, (laughs) it's not that I don't like you. I just don't know you. Uh, But I am pleased to hear that you enjoyed it. And and thanks for having me on. It's always a pleasure, man. I I hope I get invited back for my... uh, my third appearance on Cocktail College. Actively looking forward to it, Dave. But yeah, <laughs> thanks again, my friend. All right, take care. Thanks for listening to the Cocktail College podcast. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe and please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seasai, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the VinePair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Greenberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.